Welcome back to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. We are here with our fourth episode. This is our my fourth episode dealing with racism. I want to thank you for joining us again. This has been quite a journey for me, this sort of deep dive that I'm trying to do personally, and I appreciate all of you listening, and I'm hoping that listening to me process a lot of things I'm learning is helping you, as you, I'm sure you're learning as well. And this will be... A normal episode, or quote-unquote normal episode, as I'll be diving into a new book, a new author. But I will be also, next week, releasing what will be the fifth Focus on Racism episode. And that will be an actual panel that I have put together. I cannot wait to introduce you to the incredible educators that I'm going to have on this panel. I'll be recording it this week, hopefully releasing it next weekend. And that's where we're going to take all four of these first episodes and say, all right, what do we do now? How does education help fix this problem? And I can't wait to have others on this podcast with me, helping me think through that. As always, we are brought to you by NPT Education. Check us out, www.npteducation.com. We do all sorts of mentoring of school leaders, as well as professional development. We'd love to work with you or your district or your school if we can help. Today, we are diving into a new book. It is called Between the World and Me, and it is by one of the most incredible thinkers I have ever come across in my life. His name is Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he, he just is a true thinker. He just, he's a writer at the core essence of the word, where he is able to see things, he's able to use words in ways that I could never even dream of, uh, he's able to break things down. Uh, all of the above sounds poetic as he, as he writes it. And I, I, if you've never read anything by him, uh, of course, when this is over, I'm going to encourage you to dive into his writing. But I'm hoping today to take you through this book um, on a very superficial level, but on a very reflective level if I do this well. You know, I, I definitely feel that diving into my own white fragility was essential. The first three episodes of this sort of run of five that I'm hoping, I'm planning to do really taught me a lot, really allowed me to process out loud with all of you, and really showed me how much I did not understand my own white fragility. Um, and so that was extremely important. But, you know, just as important as understanding my whiteness and understanding my role in the overall system um, and how many ways my white fragility can rear its ugly head, just as important is deep diving into the pain and the perspective of black Americans. Uh, many white people are wondering how to do this right now, you know, yeah, I'm one of them, you know, how, how do we make sure we fully understand as, you know, I guess I shouldn't say fully, we never could fully, how can we make sure we more fully understand the experience of being black in America? Because if we're really going to help the system and help fix this problem, then not only do we need to understand our whiteness and how we are part of the problem, but we also need to understand deeply the the experience of black Americans you know and in this past week I was talking to 
a group of friends and some of the black friends that were in the conversation on Zoom with us talked about how they're getting texts from their white friends asking how they're doing or if they're okay. And some of them are getting texts from people they haven't talked to in a long time. And, you know, we were sort of processing that together. And it was interesting because some of my black friends see this as progress and they see it as a chance to educate, you know, their suddenly eager white friends. Uh, I'm sure I'm one of them. Um, and some of it, some of my black friends actually see this like reaching out as sort of exhausting and late and maybe even like clumsy, like as if, uh, you know, it's nice to hear from people, but it's so clear that they, they just want to feel affirmed that they're not part of the problem. When once you read White Fragility, you realize as white people, we're all part of the problem. You know, we're all on a continuum, so we're di at differing levels, but we're all part of the problem. Uh, but in that conversation, I said, I, I said, you know, either way, I think the fact that my black friends are hearing from white people, checking in, um, that that's a sign to me that many white people are listening more than normal and are ready to try and understand. And, and you know, everybody can try to understand by watching the evening news or by watching the cable news networks. Um, but I feel like there's even more to this because they're reaching out. Um, and again, I agree that some of us white people right now are trying to process, process this and, and reach out in ways that can be clumsy and late. But at the same time, um, it, it is a step. It is a step. And I feel like each of us is taking, each of us that cares is trying to take one, two, three, four, five, six steps, whatever it might be. But I am at least feeling good that so many people are taking steps. Now for me, going back to understanding the perspective of black Americans, Ta-Nehisi Coates does this for me better than anyone else ever has. So the book, he's written a few, but the one I'm going to go through today is called Between the World and Me. It was written in 2015, and it is a letter to his adolescent son. So the whole book is actually him explaining his own experience and explaining the world around them to his son, who was who, an adolescent at the time of the writing. His words in his writing are just too good for me to paraphrase. So very often today, I will actually be reading out loud. Um, I hope you enjoy this. I hope it makes it come more to life. Uh, but I just, it's not, it's not like white fragility where I can totally process it and paraphrase it. So I am going to be reading passages as I go. And between different passages, I'll of course be processing out loud because this is my journey. This is me trying to really figure out what it, what it means, what it means to be black in America. So I'm going to start with a couple paragraphs he wrote towards the beginning of the book. In quote, I write you in your 15th year. I am writing you because this was the year you saw Eric Garner choked to death for selling cigarettes. Because you know now that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help. That John Crawford was shot down for browsing in a department store. And you have seen men in uniform drive by and murder Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child whom they were oath-bound to protect. And you have seen men in the same uniforms pummel Marlene Pinnock, someone's grandmother, on the side of a road. And you know now, if you did not before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. It does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It does not matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. It does not matter if the destruction springs from a foolish policy. Sell cigarettes without the proper authority and your body can be destroyed. Resent the people trying to entrap your body. Res I'm sorry, resent the people trying to entrap your body and it can be destroyed. 
turn into a dark stairwell and your body can be destroyed. The destroyers will rarely be held accountable. Mostly they will receive pensions. And destruction is merely the superlative form of a dominion whose pr prerogatives include friskings, detainings, beatings, and humiliations. All of this is common to black people. And all of this is old for black people. No one is held responsible. There is nothing uniquely evil in these destroyers or even in this moment. The destroyers are merely men enforcing the whims of our country, correctly interpreting its heritage and legacy. It's hard to face this, but all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, social justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. End of quote. This hit me when I first read this book a few years ago, just like a punch in the face, that it would, when he talks about visceral, it was so visceral for me to hear that all these big words we think about when it comes to racism and systematic racism, that they kind of funnel down and they really just land, as Ta-Nehisi's coach says, on the, on the bodies of black people. You know, and it's unbelievable that he wrote this five years ago because you could just change or update the names to Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, many, many others. And this concept of the black body and how the black body is the, it's the, it's the pinpoint that all these other things about racism in the system come all the way down and they endanger the black body. And that really struck me when I read it, and it, it frankly strikes me even more now. And I know I refer to this often, but more and more as of late, I've been having these conversations with, my, with friends that are black. And again, like I've said it, but you, know, they, you, you just hear from them. Um, just hear from them how much a big part of their life it is, that how, how they have to figure out when to tell their kids how to behave if they're dealing with police officers, you know, which is... I wouldn't even think to have that conversation with my kids because I would just assume they would be good and that the cops would be there to help, you know, and I don't have to, I don't, I've never had to think that way. Um, one of my friends sent along the, the link to the new Apple iPhone thing that came out this week or became popular this week where as soon as you're being pulled over, you can, you can tell Siri you're being pulled over and then she will immediately record what happens and when you press stop, the app immediately sends it to whoever you've designated as the person you sent to. Imagine, imagine that we live in a world where we need that app. You know, I've said before, my friend that goes, lives in a Boston suburb, and every time he goes jogging, he brings an ID, which blew some of me and my white friends away because we just would never think to, to bring an ID, you know. And then the three words that resonate the most in the world right now in this awful scenario is, what George Floyd said, which is just, I can't breathe. And I think that Ta-Nehisi Coates' focus on how all this racism zeroes in ultimately on the black body, I think George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, was the sharpest microcosm of this um, we could ever imagine. All right, another passage, a much shorter one. 
Quote, what I told you is what your grandparents tried to tell me, that this is your country, that this is your world, that this is your body, and you must find some way to live within the all of it. I tell you now that the question of how one should live within a black body, within a country lost in the dream, is the question of my life. And the pursuit of this question, I have found, ultimately answers itself. So I want to make sure you understand that um, Mr. Coates refers often in this book to the dream. And he capitalizes the D. And this is the American dream of white people. And so he refers to sort of this whole system in America that's built on individuality and going and getting what you can get and working, much like we talked about in White Fragility, acting like it's all about how hard you work and nothing systematic plays into it. He refers to that same large, large concept as the dream. And again, it just makes me think about how I never had to think this way. I never feared for my body. I've never feared for my body in any long way at, at all. And again, trying to understand this, this black perspective on the world, the fact that it just boils down to that fear, to living in that fear. It's why there's an app on the iPhone. It's why people bring their ID while jogging. It's, it's why all these little almost tricks of the trade of being black in America. It's why they all exist is that fear of if it comes down to it, I might not have control of my body and therefore I need to protect myself in as many ways as possible. Ta-Nehisi goes on to discuss how the system built other mechanisms that have forced many black people to fear for the safety of their bodies. So it's not just this police and black Americans. It, that's just part of it. That's I, want, I don't even want to say that's the beginning. Slavery was the beginning. But that, that's just part of it. So back to the book. Quote, The streets transform every ordinary day into a series of trick questions. And every incorrect answer risks a beatdown, a shooting, or a pregnancy. No one survives unscathed. And yet the heat that springs from the constant danger from a lifestyle of near-death experience is thrilling. This is what the rappers mean when they pronounce themselves addicted to the streets or in love with the game. I imagine they feel something akin to parachutists, rock climbers, base jumpers, and other, others who choose to live on the edge. Of course, we chose nothing, and I have never believed the brothers who claim to run, much less own, the city. We did not design the streets. We do not fund them. We do not preserve them. But I was there, nevertheless, charged like all the others with the protection of my body. The crews, the young men who transmuted this fear into rage, were the greatest danger. The crews walked the blocks of their neighborhood loud and rude because it was only through their loud rudeness that they might feel any sense of security and power. They would break your jaw, stomp your face, and shoot you down to feel that power, to revel in the might of their own bodies. In their wild reveling, their astonishing acts made their names ring out. Reps were made, atrocities recounted. So that really stuck with me too because this is where he started for me to make this connection. So black people are afraid for the safety of their bodies in America. And then they, in the inner city, which is where Ta-Nehisi Coates grew up, in that area, in that, in that separate world of the inner city, new things spring up. One of which is gangs and crews and, and you know, you can you can see these things as so 
bad if you don't understand the system that causes them to exist. And so this was a big connection for me is to start to see that because black people live in fear for their bodies in America, that they then want to have pockets of power where they don't have to fear for their bodies. So it is this fear that leads to a desire for power. And then it doesn't matter if that desire, that power is over white people or black people or whoever. It's, it's just power, even over their own people. So it's this system that builds this. And the, as he says, the culture of the streets is to secure your body. So he talks a lot about how he was growing up and in his neighborhood, in the streets, he had to do everything he could to make sure his body was safe from the crews and the gangs and all that. But then he also had to make sure that his body was safe from the police and from the police brutality and all of that. And then he goes on to bring schools into the mix, which obviously on this podcast and for me really hits home. Uh, here's his quote. The streets were not my only problem. If the streets shackled my right leg, the schools shackled my left. Fail to comprehend the streets and you gave up your body now, but fail to comprehend the schools and you gave up your body later. End quote. He goes on to talk about schools where to be smart is always to have your number two pencil. Don't forget your pencil. If you don't, if you can't bring your pencil every day, you know, that's a real problem. He, he talks about walking quietly in line. You got to be quiet when we walk on the right side of the hallway. He talks about never offering an excuse. You could never say an excuse in the schools he went to, no matter how legitimate it was. You couldn't say an excuse because that was just a sign that you weren't smart. And he really goes at schools and how the system is built up in schools to be another arm of this system, which holds black people down in, in many cases. Um, quote, the world, had, the world had no time for the childhoods of black boys and girls, end quote. So when he was coming up, and I'm, you know, unfortunately, probably still today in many places, it just wasn't built. It wasn't built with black students in mind. Quote, I was a curious boy, but the schools were not concerned with my curiosity. They were concerned with compliance. I loved a few of my teachers, but I cannot say that I truly believed any of them. Some years after I'd left school, after I'd dropped out of college, I heard, I heard a few lines from Nas that struck me. Ecstasy, coke, you say it's love, it is poison. Schools where I learned they should be burned. It is poison. And that's how Ta-Nehisi really feels about what was happening to him in school. He didn't feel safe there. He didn't feel valued. He didn't feel his curiosity was nurtured. He felt his job was to just get in line, have your pencil, and do what they say. So then he goes on in his reflection to say that he personally was unfit for the streets. And he, on purpose was unfit for schools as the way they were ran. So he was really stuck. He was not going to be a gang kid. He was not He was not fit for that life, but he equally was not fit for the school life and the compliance and the lack of creativity or curiosity. Another quote, A year after I watched the boy with the small eyes pull out a gun, my father beat me for letting another boy steal from me. Two years later, he beat me for threatening my ninth grade teacher. Not being violent enough could cost me my body. Being too violent 
could cost me my body. We could not get out. I was a capable boy, intelligent, well-liked, but powerfully afraid. And I felt vaguely, wordlessly, that for a child to be marked off for such a life, to be forced to live in fear, was a great injustice. End quote. That one, that one is just amazing. For him to realize when I, when I was nonviolent outside and my father heard me, he would beat me. So he's just basically saying, even when I got home to my father, my body was at risk. My body was at risk. Again, I'm saying this as a white person who grew up in the upper middle class. I never feared for my body. And we're on page 33 of this book right now. And I'm only reading you small excerpts. You can imagine when you read the whole thing, the pain you hear. This man always feared for his body. Unbelievable to me. Quote, I came to see the streets and the schools as arms of the same beast. One enjoyed the official power of the state, while the other enjoyed its implicit sanction. But fear and violence were the weaponry of both. Fail in the streets, and the crews would catch you slipping and take your body. Fail in the schools, and you would be suspended and sent back to those same streets where they would take your body. And I began to see these two arms in relation. Those who failed in the schools justified their destruction in the streets. The society could say, he should have stayed in school, and then wash its hands of him. Ugh. The connection between the streets and the schools. And when you start, I worked in inner city schools for over 10 years as a teacher, as a assistant principal, as a principal. And I remember, I, I didn't see it this way. I didn't see the streets and the schools at times working together. And when he puts it this way, it's devastating. It's devastating. The connection between the streets and the schools. Such a systemic way to understand things. And this is, I'll be honest with you, this is why I talk about part, part of our job is understanding this from the black perspective. And, and that's why this is so important. Because I was seeing the systems and trying to work within them to help kids succeed. But I was seeing them from my vantage point. And it's, this book is life-changing in that it helps you see it from someone else's. So for Coates himself, he fell in love with reading and writing. Um, and this was sort of his savior. He loved the words of Malcolm X, whom he found to be unapologetically black. He was inspired by this man who it just was, he just felt was being fully black and wasn't apologizing about it. And a lot of this book um, is about the story of Ta-Nehisi Coates' college experience. He went to Howard University, which he refers to as the Mecca, and to which he attributes much of his thinking development. So we see how, as he's telling his son all of this in the book, we see how school wasn't made for him, but then he found his way at Howard University, at the Mecca. But even at the Mecca, education never fully fit him, never fully fit him, even at the place that he attributes with so much uh, of his development. Quote, it was still a school after all. I wanted to pursue things, to know things, but I could not match the means of knowing that came naturally to me with the expectations of professors. The pursuit of knowing was freedom to me, the right to declare your own curiosities and follow them through all manner of books. I was made for the library, not the classroom. The classroom was a jail of other people's interests. 
The library was open, open, unending, free, period, end quote. So clearly he liked a lot of what he got out of the Mecca, but it still didn't mean all of a sudden he loved traditional education. But he did love a library, and he did love self-education. And not long after this, he, he says the quote, he's talking about hatred, and he says the quote, hate gives identity. I'll say it again. Hate gives identity. That, that is true. When you start to think about what hate does, you realize that the first thing it does is it gives the person who's hating a self-identity. And that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing because we all want a self-identity, right? And if we don't feel one naturally, we can latch on to hate and it gives us one. That, that written by a man who didn't like school. Uh -huh, pretty impressive. Um, goes on, another quote. You have to make peace with your chaos, but you cannot lie. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. End quote. So he gets into really educating his son in this book about how the systems worked and how at the, again, pinpoint of it all was the black body. That was what was at risk. I'm going to read a, large, a longer one now. This is on pages 75 and 76. Quote, Shortly before you were born, I was pulled over by the PG County Police, the same police that all the DC poets had warned me of. They approached on both sides of the car, shining their flashing lights through the windows. They took my identification and returned to the squad car. I sat there in, in terror. By then, I had added to the warnings of I had added to the warnings of my teachers what I'd learned about PG County through reporting and reading the papers, and so I knew the PG County police had killed Elmer Clay Newman, then claimed he'd rammed his own head into the wall of a jail cell, and I knew that they'd shot Gary Hopkins and said he'd gone for an officer's gun, and I knew they had beaten Freddie McCollum half blind and blamed it all on a collapsing floor. And I had read reports of these officers choking mechanics, shooting construction workers, slamming suspects through the glass doors of shopping malls. And I knew that they did this with great regularity, as though moved by some, some unseen cosmic clock. I knew that they shot at moving cars, shot at the unarmed, shot through the backs of men, and claimed that it had been they who'd been under fire. These shooters were investigated, exonerated, and promptly returned to the streets, where, so emboldened, they shot again. At that point in American history, no police department fired its guns more than that of Prince George's County, PG County. The FBI opened multiple investigations, sometimes in the same week. The police chief was rewarded with a raise. I replayed all of this sitting there in my car, in their clutches. Better to have been shot in Baltimore, where there was the justice of the streets and someone might call the killer to account. But these officers had my body could do with that body whatever they pleased and should i live to and should i live to explain what they had done with it this complaint would mean nothing the officer returned he handed back my license he gave no explanation for the stop it's so end of end of quote it's so hard for me to imagine that all of this is what goes through a black man's mind when he is dealing with the police in a traffic stop these are the people meant to protect him. And, and this is all these thoughts are racing through his mind. You know, I've always marveled at this dynamic. And dynamic doesn't even do it justice. I, I, I need a heavier, I need a more violent word. But more than ever, I'm seeing just how unfair it is. And in fact, 
Again, unfair doesn't carry enough weight as a word in this instance. It's just, I can't believe if a police officer was walking up to my car, all I would be thinking about is if I get a ticket, what's it going to do to my insurance? And a police officer walking up to this black man's car, and he's he's someone that's educated himself in that particular district, he's running through all the things the police have done to black people and gotten away with. And he goes on to say that months later, the same police department would kill one of his incredible Howard University classmates named Prince Carmen Jones. One officer shot him, claimed he tried to run him over. There were no witnesses. And the people that knew Prince Carmen Jones just knew how peaceful he was. Just They just knew. He says, we just know that's not what happened. And he was murdered by the police. Quote, at this moment, the phrase police reform has come into vogue, and the actions of our publicly appointed guardians have attracted attention, presidential and pedestrian. You may have heard the talk of diversity, sensitivity training, and body cameras. These are all fine and applicable, but they understate the task and allow the citizens of this country to pretend that there is a real distance between their own attitudes and those of the ones appointed to protect them. The truth is that the police reflect America in all of its will and fear, and whatever we might make of this country's criminal justice policy, it cannot be said that it was imposed by a repressive minority. This is pretty deep. He's going there to say that, yeah, we can do police reform, and, and this is, again, five years ago, and, and he, he it transfers, he goes, talks about it. a lot of the words we're talking about now, police reform, sensitivity training, body cameras. He says you can do all that, but it's it's... It's never going to fix it unless we fix the overall thinking that the society is built on. And that's a taller order, as he's saying. And he's saying, in the meantime, police are an arm of this society. They aren't the, they aren't the ones holding up the society. They are an arm of the society. Quote, at the onset of the Civil War, our stolen bodies were worth $4 billion, more than all of American industry, all of American railroads, workshops, and factories combined. And the prime product rendered by our stolen bodies, cotton, was America's primary export. That, this is the kind of history that I don't understand. And it's my own fault. But... And I don't have a great memory, so who knows? I could have had teachers teaching me the right way, and it just I just don't have a great memory. But the fact that slaves in America were worth more than railroads, workshops, and factories combined, and that the slaves picked our cotton, which is what our primary export was, it's that kind of understanding that helps you realize just how much this country is built on the black body, as Ta-Nehisi Coates says. Quote, here is what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. End quote. New quote. It had to be blood. It had to be nails driven through tongue and ears pruned away. Some disobedience, wrote a southern mistress. Much idleness, sullenness, slovenliness, slovenliness under the rod. It had to be the thrashing of kitchen hands for the crime of churning butter at a leisurely clip. It had to be some woman cheered with 30 lashes, a Saturday last, and as many more, a Tuesday again. 
It could only be the employment of carriage whips, tongs, iron pokers, handsaws, stones, paperweights, or whatever might be handy to break the black body, break the black family, break the black community, and the black nation. The, the bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance. And the bodies were an aspiration, lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife, or a summer home in the mountains. For the men who needed to believe themselves white, the bodies were the key to a social club, and the right to break the bodies was the mark of civilization. This is a quote within the quote. The two greatest divisions of society are not the rich and the poor, but white and black, said the great South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun. Back to the quote. And all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals. And there it is, the right to break the black body as the meaning of their sacred equality. And that right has always given them meaning, has always meant that there was someone down in the valley because a mountain is not a mountain if there is nothing below. You and I, my son, are that below. That was true in 1776. It is true today. <sighs> it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough read when you dive into it. And that's what makes this book so important because again, this is the this is this is the feelings of a black man who has who's seeing it clearly by the way who's seeing today connected to yesterday connected connected to our deep past and unfortunately seeing into the future and it's it's hard as a white male to think that this much is happening inside and externally in the overall system quote but oh my eyes when I was a boy, no portion of my body suffered more than my eyes. If I had done well by the measures of childhood, it must be added that those measures themselves are hampered by how a little boy of my captive class had seen. The dream seemed to be the pinnacle, then, to grow rich and live in one of those disconnected houses out in the country, in one of those small communities, one of those cul-de-sacs with its gently curving ways, where they staged teen movies and children built tree houses, and in that last year lost before college, teenagers made love and parked cars at the lake. The dream seemed to be the end of the world for me, the height of American ambition. What more could possibly exist beyond the dispatches, beyond the suburbs? Your mother never, your mother, I'm sorry, your mother knew. Perhaps it was because she was raised within the physical borders of such a place, because she lived in proximity with the dreamers. Perhaps it was because the people who thought they were white told her she was smart and followed this up by telling her she was not really black, meaning it as a compliment. Perhaps it was the boys out there who were, who were in fact black, telling her she was pretty for a dark-skinned girl. Your mother never felt quite at home. This is an interesting part of the book because he talks about his wife and his son's mother and he talks about how she grew up differently from him and how that impacted her differently. And I've talked already in one of the prior pods of how hard it can be to be a person of color in a mostly white community and just how much comes with that. So in this book, his mother was really enamored with Paris and she went there, she traveled there on her own and she fell in love with the city and then they started traveling there as a family. And at first Tana Hesse Coates was not was not really he, he he wasn't enamored with getting out. He wasn't enamored with trying a different country. But then as he traveled there with his wife and his son, it really changed him a bit. It really it really 
it really changed his, his perspective because it was incredible throughout this to see how much his blackness in America anchored him or trapped him internally. It was always part of everything that was going on in his mind and that was going on around him. It seemed like he couldn't escape, for lack of better words, like the chains, the chains. So let me read to you from some of this. Uh, quote, it occurred to me that I was really in someone else's country, and yet in some necessary way, I was outside of their country. In America, I was part of an equation. Even if it wasn't part, even if it wasn't a part I relished, I was the one the police stopped on 23rd Street in the middle of the workday. I was the one driven to the Mecca, that's Howard University. I was not just a father, but the father of a black boy. I was not just a spouse, but the husband of a black woman, a, fright, a freighted symbol of black love. But sitting in that garden for the first time, I was, and now he's in Paris, I was an alien. I was a sailor, landless and disconnected. And I was sorry that I had never felt this particular loneliness before, that I had never felt myself so far outside of someone else's dream. So that goes back to how he's so trapped and anchored in America by his blackness. But then here in Paris, he started to feel this freedom that he, he just wasn't part of the equation anymore. There was something more. So he goes on, quote, We came back to Paris that summer because your mother loved the city and because I loved the language. But above all, because of you. I wanted you to have your own life apart from fear, even apart from me. I am wounded. I am marked by old codes, which shielded me in one world and then chained me in the next. I think of your grandmother calling me and noting how you were growing tall and one day tried to test me. And I said to her that I would regard that day should it come as the total failure of my fatherhood because if all I had over you were my hands, then I really had nothing at all. But forgive me, son. I, kn I knew what she meant, and when you were younger, I thought the same. And now I am ashamed of the thought, ashamed of my fear, of the generational tr chains I tried to clasp onto your wrists. We are entering our last years together, and I wish I had been softer with you. Your mother had to teach me how to love you, how to kiss you, and tell you I love you every night. Even now, it does not feel a wholly natural act, so much as it feels like a ritual. And that is because I am wounded. That is because I am tied to old ways, which I learned in a hard house. It was a loving house, even as it was, besieged by its country. But it was hard. Even in Paris, I could not shake the old ways, the instinct to watch my back at all, every pass and always be ready to go. Again, the, the, the chains of being black, always watching my back, always ready to, grow, to go. Still in Paris here, quote, That was the same summer that the killer of Trayvon Martin was acquitted. The summer I realized that I accepted that there is no velocity of escape. Home would find us in any language. Remember when we took the train up to Place de la Nation, or Nation to celebrate your birthday with Janai and Ben and the kids? Remember the young men standing outside the subway in protest? Do you remember his sign? It was a sign, I, it's in French here, but it was a sign about Trayvon Martin. Even in Paris, there were people protesting in honor of Trayvon Martin. Quote continues, I did not die in my aimless youth. I did not perish in the agony of not knowing. I was not jailed. I had proven to myself that there was another way beyond the schools and the streets. I felt myself to be among the survivors of some great natural disaster, some plague, some avalanche or earthquake. End quote. That quote 
again, he talks about the dream with the capital D, the American dream. Then to realize that as he thinks about the fact that he escaped the streets, he escaped the schools, he escaped the violence of his own home, and he escaped the violence of police brutality. He says, I'll read it again, I felt myself to be among the survivors of some great natural disaster, some plague, some avalanche, or earthquake. Oh, I mean, that one, as they all have, but to, to just live your life and then to feel that deeply like you've escaped, I don't, I don't have a sense of escape within me. I feel like I've like flourished in this garden that was built for me. And that's what I think a lot of white people like myself are realizing more than ever, more than ever. And maybe we're connecting to it more than ever. Maybe we're having a deeper understanding. But that that is new for me to fully understand the system and how everything is interwoven. And I, throughout the book, Ta-Nehisi's use of language is really meant to symbolize the aspirational essence of American culture, which I, which I love how he does it. But he's also acknowledging that the dream was built on the backs of black people. Built on the backs of black people. Quote, Michael Brown did not die as so many of his defenders supposed. And still the questions behind the questions are never asked. Should assaulting an officer of the state be a capital offense rendered without trial with the officer as judge and executioner? Is that what we wish civilization to be? And all the time the dreamers are pillage, pillaging Ferguson for municipal governance and they are torturing Muslims and their drones are bombing wedding parties by accident. And the dreamers are quoting Martin Luther King and exalting nonviolence for the weak and the biggest guns for the strong. Wow. I'm going to read that part again. And the dreamers are quoting Martin Luther King. Remember, the dreamers are white America. And the dreamers are quoting Martin Luther King and exulting nonviolence for the weak and the biggest guns for the strong. Each time a police officer engages us, death, injury, maiming is all possible. It is not enough to say that, there, that this is true of anyone or more true of criminals. The moment the officers began their pursuit of Prince Jones, his life was in danger. The dreamers accept this as the cost of doing business, accept our bodies as currency because it is their tradition. As slaves, we were this country's first windfall, the down payment on its freedom. After the ruin and liberation of the Civil War came redemption for the unrepentant South and reunion, and our bodies became this country's second mortgage. In the New Deal, we were the guest room, their finished basement. And today, with a sprawling prison system, which has turned the warehousing of black bodies into a job program for dreamers and a lucrative investment for dreamers, today, when 8% of the world's prisoners are black men, our bodies have refinanced the dream of being white. Black life is cheap. But in America, black bodies are a natural resource of incomparable value. And that really sets up the final section of the book. He really starts to talk to his son about what he calls the chasm, the distance between the dreamers and black Americans. So as a black man, he grew up in this world set on this notion of the dreamers, set, on, set in this system built for white people to be dreamers and to build their whole dream upon black bodies. So I'm going to read a couple. It's I said early on, it's impossible for me to paraphrase because how he says everything is so perfect. Um, but it, none more so than my notes on this last section where I now have four passages in a row without many notes of my own. Quote, 
This chasm makes itself known to us in all kinds of ways. A little girl wanders home at age seven after being teased in school and asks her parents, are we N-words and what does this mean? Sometimes it is subtle, the simple observation of who lives where and works what jobs and who does not. Sometimes it's all of it at once. I have never asked you how you became personally aware of the distance. Was it Mike Brown? I don't think I want to know. But I know that it has happened to you already, that you have deduced that you are privileged and yet still different from other privileged children, because you are the bearer of a body more fragile than any other in this country. What I want you to know is that this is not your fault, even if it is ultimately your responsibility. It is your responsibility because you are surrounded by the dreamers. It has nothing to do with how you wear your pants or how you style your hair. The breach is as intentional as policy, as intentional as the forgetting that follows. The breach allows for the efficient sorting of the plundered from the plunderers, the enslaved from the enslavers, sharecroppers from landholders, cannibals from food. End quote. New quote. I thought back on the sit-ins, the protesters with their stoic faces, the ones I'd once scorned for hurling their bodies at the worst things in life. Perhaps they had known something terrible about the world. Perhaps they so willingly parted with the security and sanctity of the black body because neither security nor sanctity existed in the first place. And all those old photographs from the 1960s, all those films I beheld of black people prostrate, bef prostrate before clubs and dogs were not simply shameful. Indeed, were not shameful at all. They were just true. We are captured, brother, surrounded by the majoritarian bandits of America, and this has happened here in our only home, and the terrible truth is that we cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. Perhaps that was, is, the hope of the movement, to awaken the dreamers, to rouse them to the facts of what their need to be white, to talk like they are white, to think that they are white, which is to think that they are beyond the, the design flaws of humanity has done to the world. But you cannot arrange your life around them and the small chance of the dreamers coming into consciousness. Our moment is too brief. Our bodies are too precious. And you are here now and you must live. And there is so much out there to live for. Not just in someone else's country, but in your own home. The warmth of dark energies that drew me to the Mecca, that drew out Prince Jones. The warmth of our particular world is beautiful, no matter how brief and breakable. End quote. This is an incredible moment because now it's like he, he's starting to feel, and, and as a reader you feel like he has fully explained the system, and he's telling his son, it, you can't just hope for the dreamers, for the white people to wake up and realize how unfair and how violent the system is. You, it, maybe, maybe someday, but not in our lifetime because the moment's too short. So you have to understand the system, understand the dreamers, and understand all the flaws of humanity, but then you have to live your life and you have to enjoy your life and you have to find a way to protect your body within the system while also living a life that is beautiful. Quote, and black power births a kind of understanding that illuminates all the galaxies in their truest colors. Even the dreamers, lost in, the, in their great reverie, feel it, for it is the billy they reach for in sadness. In mob deep is what they holler in boldness. In Isley they hum in love. In Dre they yell in revelry. And Aretha is the last sound they hear before dying. We have made something down here. We have taken the one-drop rules of dreamers and flipped them. They made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. I'm going to continue, but I'm going to read that one again. 
We have taken the one-drop rules of dreamers and flipped them. They made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. Here at the Mecca, under pain of selection, we have made a home, as do black people on summer blocks, marked with needles, vials, and hopscotch squares, as do black people dancing it out at rent parties, as do black people at their family reunions, where we are regarded like the survivors of catastrophe, as do black people toasting their cognac in German beers, passing their blunts, and debating MCs, as do all of us who have voyaged through death to life upon these shores. And lastly, last quote I'll read, quote, I drove away from the house of Marble Jones thinking of all of this. I drove away, as always, thinking of you. I do not believe that we can stop them, Samori, because they must ultimately stop themselves. And still I urge you to struggle. Struggle for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for wisdom. Struggle for the warmth of the Mecca. Struggle for your grandmother and grandfather, for your name. But do not struggle for the dreamers. Hope for them. Pray for them if you are so moved, but do not pin your struggle on their conversion. The dreamers will have to learn to struggle themselves to understand that the field for their dream, the stage where they have painted themselves white, is the deathbed of us all. The dream is the same habit that endangers the planet, the same habit that sees our bodies stowed away in prisons and ghettos. I saw these ghettos driving back from Dr. Jones' homes. They were the same ghettos I had seen in Chicago all those years ago, the same ghettos where my mother was raised, where my father was raised. Through the windshield, I saw the mark of these ghettos, the abundance of beauty shops, churches, liquor stores, and crumbling housing, and I felt the old fear. Through the windshield, I saw the rain coming down in sheets. And that's just, that's the end of the book. But I just want to reiterate in, from that passage that Coates says right there in the end of this book that ultimately it is on the dreamers to fix this. And I think that, I hope, is what's happening right now is that white people are realizing that it is on us to fix this. It is on us to listen to black people, to, to, to talk, to read, to research, to understand. I can't encourage you enough to read this book on your own. I've only, I've literally only scraped the surface of what this book does, but it it truly, I hope you've heard, even from this podcast, teaches you how embedded the systems are, and just as importantly, how it all falls upon the black body. That is the funnel down. That is the systems up top funneling down to the black body not being safe. So here's my big takeaways. First, this concept of black people fearing for their bodies. This was totally new for me. I never had thought of it in that targeted a manner. It is so much more than like moment to moment stuff. It's so much more than like, oh, black people feel racism. It's, it's always, they always feel it. And it's because, and it, no, not because, and it boils down to their safety. It's that primal. It's that primal in 2020. That's what my black friends, that's what black colleagues, that, that's what they're feeling. And that is just so powerful. And Ta-Nehisi Coates has taught me that. Another big takeaway is the relationship that all that, it's all fitting together. White supremacy, racism, ghettos, prisons, schools, gangs, etc. This system is built in such an integrated fashion. 
It all started with slavery. And when slavery was abolished, the system adapted and built all these new systems to still make it hard on black people. And it sort of brings me back to that birdcage analogy from White Fragility, where if you put your, your face up to a birdcage, you just see the bird and you're like, why isn't this bird flying away? And then you look to your right and you can only see one bar. Uh, it's an optical illusion from the birdcage. And you think, well, there's one bar, but they, they could just the bird could just fly around that. And then you step back and you see the integrated system of bars which holds them in. And from, this book really helped me see the relationship that exists between police schools, the streets, even families, how it all came together to hold the, the, the system or to hold the dream in place. And the last big takeaway, and it's, it's hard, but it's, the, it's sort of, for lack of a better terminology, terminology, it's the alwaysness of the emotions of being black in America. It's just overwhelming for me as a white man to read this and to just understand how much being black played into every psychological moment that Ta-Nehisi Coates has had along the way and how I've never had to think that way. In fact, I tricked myself and thought that being white had nothing to do with it from my own perspective. And obviously white fragility changed that for me. Um, this this alwaysness, this, this takes me back to my tourist analogy, which I've been, I think, referring back to in all of these episodes. But... I just, I want to find a way personally to, to start to experience race all the time, more frequently, because only when white people start to understand how big a part it is of every moment and how much we're socialized within a racial structure, only then can we fully understand those bars, can we fully understand that system. And... I understand now more than ever how tired my black friends are and just how exhausting this is. And I feel for them and I respect them so much. And my, I know that one of my jobs as a white person is to dive into this thinking and this, more importantly, this feeling as much as humanly possible so that I start to feel tired, so that I start to feel tired. So I really thank Ta-Nehisi Coates for writing this incredible book. Um, it's life-changing when you read it. Absolutely life-changing. Um, you can look up videos of him speaking online. He has an incredible video I watched a few years ago explaining why white people shouldn't use the N-word. And it, it was, if I recall correctly, you can just Google Ta-Nehisi Coates and the N-word. You'll get the video. I feel like it's about seven minutes long. But it totally makes that word make more sense as a white person and understanding what has happened with that word and why. Um, I also listened to him recently I recommend it just last week on Ezra Klein's podcast. He interviewed Ta-Nehisi for an hour and a half, and it was incredible, incredible. Hearing him speak is just as beautiful as hearing him write. Um, but one of the craziest things and one of the most uplifting things about that podcast is something I think we're all feeling, which he he now in this moment in 2020, Ta-Nehisi Coates feels hopeful. He feels hopeful, and he you can hear it in his voice. He's almost scared to admit it, but he feels hopeful. And he says, quote, A critical mass of non-black people have come to see the enforcers of the state in a different kind of way, end quote. So even this man who can go deeper into this thinking than most, he feels that this moment is different, that there are white people engaged in just how he told his son 
we can't change this, son. Someday the dreamers are the ones that are going to have to change this. I think from the podcast I listened to last week, he says it's not a majority, but it's a critical mass of the dreamers. I like to think I'm one of them. I like to think a lot of you are one of them. Are seeing it differently now. And this is what it's going to take. So thank you, Ta-Nehisi Coates. If you have other things that you want to dive into, I recently listened to a book on tape called The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. He's an amazing author. The Nickel Boys is his newest book. Um, it's a great way to dive back into some fiction, but not leave this topic and not leave this thinking behind. And it, it's an incredible book, The Nickel Boys, uh, just showing, again, that birdcage, showing it. Uh, I also highly recommend Trevor Noah. I feel like the first 10 minutes of The Daily Show right now with Trevor Noah at home just speaking from his soul are just must-see TV. Uh, and and as, as a white person trying to not be a tourist in this thinking, trying to not to dip in and dip out as I feel, as I, as I feel fit, uh, Trevor Noah every day is diving in in an incredible way. So thank you again for listening. Please check out Episode 5 next weekend sometime. It'll be my panel of educators and, and a non-educator, and we'll be discussing what does all this mean for education? What can education do? I think it'll bring have value not only for teachers and administrators and counselors, but also for parents. If you are a parent, if you are to be a parent someday, I think that next week's panel will give us some ideas on how we overcome all of this and fight back through education. Uh, don't forget to check out NPTeducation.com. Don't forget to not be a tourist. Keep thinking, keep feeling, and thank you so much again to Tana Hesse Coates. And thank you for joining us here on the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Just you and me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.